0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid work prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online.
1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8-Side Network. Paul Westhead joins us on Sports Byline. He's one of the most accomplished basketball coaches to ever coach the game. He's been the head coach of three NBA teams, the Lakers, Bulls, and Nuggets, And he's also been a head coach in the WNBA. He won an NBA championship with the Lakers and a WNBA title with Phoenix. And his pro coaching resume also includes the ABA and Japan Basketball League. And he certainly is known for an unorthodox run-and-gun style called the system. And he has written about his interesting life and career and the players and teams he was involved in. And I want you to check this book out. It's called The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball. Paul, let's go back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Philadelphia.
2: Well, I grew up in uh, West Philadelphia. Uh, Went to the local high school, West Catholic High School, with 2,600 other boys. Uh, Tried out for my basketball team freshman year through senior year, and always got cut, so I, I was a basketball player without a team, and I went to a prep school, Malvern Prep, and I played there and did well and uh, led the league in scoring and got a scholarship to St. Joseph's with Jack Ramsey, so that one year turned around my whole uh, career of my life.
1: Paul, one of the things I know about Philadelphia, it's a mecca for sports. It's got the big four there, of course, and college basketball and everything. But what is it that makes Philadelphia from a sports standpoint so unique?
2: Well, uh, particularly in basketball, Ron, uh, during my time, uh, you know, in the 70s, 80s, uh, all of the players as they were growing up aspired to play for one of the teams in Philadelphia. So it was kind of... You know, you were brought up to, you know, go to St. Joe's or Sal or St. uh, Villanova uh, or Temple or Penn. So uh, it was ingrained in you that this is where you were going to play your game and you were going to uh, have rivals for the rest of your life from Philadelphia. Also, I
1: think that the playground game is instrumental in cities like Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia. What was the playground game like there? Well,
2: the playground game... uh, In my neighborhood was if you got there early and one of the better players picked you on his team, you better win because there was like (laughs) 40 or 50 other players ready to go. So winners stayed and losers were out. So if you lost, uh, you had to wait a couple more hours and you might not get picked on that team again.
1: You mentioned about playing at St. Joe's and Jack Ramsey. I got to know Jack when he was the coach up at Portland, and I was doing the Sonics basketball games there. Always found him very interesting, very thoughtful. Tell me about the impression he left on you and and maybe some of the tools he gave you as you moved on in your career.
2: Yeah, Jack really, you know, affected my life in many ways. Uh, At St. Joe's, uh, he was my professor in um, education, and uh, he was, you know, kind of my advisor as I was graduating. And I remember I uh, had a chance for a, a, a teaching coaching job. And he said, Oh, OK, Paul, I'll make the call for you. He said, but I don't think you're going to be a very good coach. I don't think you're cut out for that. <laughs> he said, I, uh, I think you're going to be a classroom teacher. And initially he was right. I, uh, I started out teaching and then. Ultimately, he made another phone call and got me a a freshman coaching job at the University of Dayton, so uh, that launched my career.
1: Yeah, you were named the LaSalle University men's basketball coach in 1970, and I've talked to a lot of coaches that have gone on to the NBA and elsewhere, and they always kind of harken back to that college experience. I suppose it has to do with the kids more than anything else, and, and maybe teaching them not only basketball but life to some degree. Am I correct in that observation, Paul?
2: Yeah, I think you're correct. In fact, I'll even go back uh, beyond that or below that. I, I taught at Cheltenham High School outside of Philadelphia for five years. I was an English literature teacher. Uh, I coached the basketball team, and it was a great experience. I mean, looking back, it it might have been the, the happiest five years of my life. Uh, so uh, because I know I was having an impact on my athletes, and I had an impact on the students that I taught uh, at Cheltenham High.
1: Let me ask you a little bit about uh, making the jump to the NBA, because I've talked to pro athletes in all sports, and I said, you know, what did you expect it to be, and how was it similar to or different? Let me put it to you. I've never asked a coach this. What did you expect coaching and in the NBA to be like, and how was it similar or different from what you thought?
2: Well, I showed up in Los Angeles. Jack McKinney uh, was my good friend from St. Joseph's. Uh, asked me to be his assistant. I got on a plane. Say, I said, I'll be there tomorrow. Uh, I showed up and uh, they were working out a little bit. And he said, "Down the other end was Kareem Abdul Jabbar." I said, "Why don't you go on down and you know work with him? I'm doing other things up here." So I went down, uh, said hello. He just nodded and he wanted me to throw him some passes into the low post. And I did about 25 of them, and he made all 25 little sky hooks. And he said, "Thank you very much." I walked back to Jack and I said man, this pro game is easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I later found out it's not quite that easy. And, and one of the major differences between high school, college, and then the professional rank is that the pros, this is their livelihood. This is what they do. And and you, you have to learn the system of them and their agents and their contracts and their interaction with the owners. So uh, I was totally naive to all of that and uh, uh, later I, I, I learned how to do that. The
1: other thing too Paul uh, is that at the professional level you have to be able to push the buttons in the right way not only on the players but on the team as well. While I in the college ranks You know, if a coach asks a player to run through a wall, yeah, okay, I'll run through the wall. At the pro level, they'll say, now, coach, let's talk about this for a second, (laughs) and let me talk to to your agent. When you had to deal with that, what was your reaction to that?
2: That's interesting, Ryan. I I had a situation uh, in my second year. We were training in Palm Springs, California. And I had my first practice, which is like an hour and a half. I tried to run them hard to show them that we were going to be a fast-break, hard-running team. And at the end, I did the classic college uh, drill to run the lines up and down, up and down like 10 times. And everybody did it. And uh, when it ended, they walked off. And Kareem walked over to me and by himself and put his arm around me. And he said, Paul, I don't do sprints like that. <laughs> and and then, he, and then he walked away. And I went back to my room, my hotel room, and we had a practice that night and I figured it out. It was his way of saying, I did it not to embarrass you, but I'm not going to do any more. So figure it out. And I never ran those sprints at the end of practice again.
1: Paul, you were an East Coast guy and certainly acclimated to the way they do things back East. You got New York, you got Philadelphia and everything. But California and Los Angeles is a different animal. When you got out to Los Angeles, even as an assistant coach, what was your uh, impression of the way things were done, uh, not only on the West Coast and in Los Angeles, but generally speaking in Los Angeles with the Lakers?
2: Yeah, well, I arrived uh, a very pivotal moment in the history of the Lakers Uh, a month before my arrival and Jack McKinney's hiring Jerry Buss just bought the team so we had a new owner we had a new coach and we had a new player in the draft uh, one Magic Johnson so everything was just in the uh, development stage Uh, the Lakers were okay in the '70s, and and but they didn't have all of the uh, fanfare that they now have. They, uh, we practiced uh, at Inglewood High School. Uh, we our, our office was we had three desks for three four people. Uh, it, but the championship in 1980, uh, which we won in my hometown of Philadelphia, that turned the Lakers into becoming, you know, the the giant monster um, that they are now.
1: When you take a look at the uh, image of Los Angeles, did that ever uh, come into play with the development of the team in any way? It's Hollywood.
2: Yeah, if it did, I was oblivious to it. You know, I uh, I brought out from Philadelphia my, my wife, Cassie, and our four children, and if I wasn't at practice uh, or in the office, I was trying to establish a new life in, in Southern California. Uh, I think I learned later that, you know, the, the players uh, uh, were kind of drawn to the Hollywood world and, and the excitement. But uh, as their coach, I, I kind of stayed under the radar and I'm kind of glad, glad for that.
1: Paul Westwood is with us. We're talking about his book, The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball, also about his life and some of the players he coached involved with. It's a fascinating book, and I recommend it to you, and we're going to make it a selection of the month on the Sports Byline Book Corner. We continue across the country and around the world. It's good to have you with us on America's sports talk show, Sports Byline.
3: Step into the world of power,
0: loyalty. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VTW Group. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
3: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis
0: Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's
3: one version. This guy is a piece of sh. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation.
1: And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom.
3: Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars.
1: We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarsella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop.
0: They can go f*** themselves.
3: I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.
1: You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Paul Westhead is with us here on Sports Byline USA, Longtime coach, very successful coach. He's been the head coach of three NBA teams, the Lakers, the Bulls, and the Nuggets, and he has a book out that I hope you'll check out. It's called The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball. You mentioned that uh, Magic Johnson was just a guard. He was a rookie guard when you uh, got with the team. What was the first impression you had of him?
2: Uh, my first impression w- was very favorable. You, you could tell as as a rookie that Magic uh, wanted to do anything for the team. Uh, he, you know, he wanted to please. He wanted to be accepted. And the way he did it, uh, well into his rookie year, was that he w- was an excellent rebounder. So he played more like a power forward than he did the point guard who was only now assist in his career. So he he the players would look at him and say, Look at magic get in there and bang and bump with, with the big fellas and get us in a second shot. It was only later in his career that he then controlled the ball and became, you know, the great passer that he eventually uh, displayed.
1: You of course was an assistant under Jack McKinney you alluded to that a little bit earlier and he had the tragic accident a bicycling accident and I'm just wondering being an assistant and ultimately becoming the head coach of the Lakers uh that period of time getting you acclimated was that a real benefit to you I would think it would be
2: Well it was a it was a very difficult time Ron to be honest I- uh, I was thrust into being a head coach of the NBA and, and uh, brand new. i never <clears throat> been involved in professional sports. I had my friend Jack McKinney, you know, in the hospital for some weeks and then recovering at home. And, and so it was a difficult time. I was kind of caught in between. Uh, I had the ability to just focus on the team and, and not let everything kind of mix up the, the bag. Uh, And then I had the good fortune that I hired Pat Riley as my assistant, and uh, he was very helpful uh, in telling me about the league because he was an experienced player and broadcaster at that time. Did
1: you have to be careful about making uh, some decisions in the early going uh, because you're following in a very tragic situation? How did you acclimate yourself and get the team to buy into what what Paul Westhead wanted him to do?
2: Well, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Jack had his accident on a Tuesday late afternoon, uh, and Tuesday night, you know, I, his wife called me, and I found out about it. He was in little company in Mary Hospital, and I'm telling you this because Wednesday morning, the players just heard about it. it was. This was before cell phones and everything, and I showed up for a shoot-around. We had a game scheduled that night, so uh, how did I acclimate? It was me or the trainer giving them, you know, final instructions. So there were no group of assistant coaches there. back then. You, there was only one assistant coach, and I was it. So uh, I had to stand up and uh, and take over, whether I liked it or not. I was, basketball-wise, I was pretty, you know, confident because I had spent nine years as a head coach at LaSalle. So I, I knew the game. Uh, the the ability to understand players and their backgrounds and their needs and their contracts, uh, I was totally naive and did not understand that. that. That was not a good point for me.
1: What was surprising about it that
2: made you naive? Well, I mean, I, I didn't understand, you know, that there, there were agents who would tell players, like, I'll get you a good contract and you're only averaging 8 points a game so you need to average 12 to 14 points a game and then i'd be saying to that very same player uh, you really can help us if you play more defense and don't worry about scoring and the player would look at you and say wow this is this is a hard one coach you're saying play defense and my agent is saying play offense so it becomes tricky uh and uh, you know fortunately for me I had some very good players, I mean, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson and Jamal Wilkes, uh, you know, uh, I had a chance uh, to survive.
1: Yeah, I've known Jamal for a very long time, and we've had long conversations, and he had the right personality to really fit into that group. I found a very – and you, you bring up a good point because you were caught between a rock and a hard place if they said, we, you know, you got to score more points to get a better contract – But that was not exactly what you needed to have all the time. It must have been difficult for you. How did you manage your way through that ultimately?
2: Well, my ultimate was what I had done in my high school and college coaching. Uh, You get minutes for performance. So, I mean, in, in some respects, it's a very simple formula if we play you and you play 12 minutes and you really do well and, and you help the team win, you know, you're probably going to play 15 or 16 minutes the next night. And if you don't, then obviously your minutes go down. So uh, I use that as my mantra, you know, learning the game. Uh, and, and most of our players perform very well. So it was, it was to my advantage.
1: What was the catalyst of your NBA championship season? Give me some insight into that season.
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, we making the playoffs and we, we did pretty well. We went through the West fairly easy. And then we meet up with the Philadelphia 76ers with Dr. J and Daryl Dawkins and company and, and Uh, Maurice Cheeks. So we knew we were in for a a very difficult time. And uh, just going through that series, uh, you know, I can still recall in in game five, Kareem getting injured and going to the locker room and coming back five minutes later with minutes to go and the game on the line. And he goes back in and scores a thundering uh, hook shot and gets fouled, makes the foul. And we win the game, and you know we're elated, and then we find out that Kareem is not going to play anymore, is not coming to Philadelphia, uh, and we have to go to game six without our star center. Uh, there's a real learning process going on now.
1: Was that the uh, series in which uh, Magic became a center? Uh, and I was trying to recall, but I don't remember.
2: Yeah, yes, it is uh, we're We're flying to Philadelphia. Uh, of course, everyone flew commercial then, so uh, Magic strategically sat in Kareem's seat. Kareem always sat in row one, and I got on a plane, and Magic sitting there. Uh, and I eventually talked to him, and I said, could you play center? He said, sure. I, uh, I was a center in high school, and that was only like two years ago. So, if you remember, Magic went from high school, to Michigan State for one year, and then the NBA, So he said, yeah, I I, I know how to play center. Uh, We had a shoot-around, and we put in a play for him like Kareem's play. And sure enough, the start of the game in Philadelphia, he made a turnaround hook shot. You would think it was Kareem, and then he went everywhere. I mean, he was guard, forward, wingman, and scored 42 points. So uh, we were very successful in Magic playing center that night.
1: We have about two minutes left before we have to break here, but you compiled a record of 112 wins, 50 losses, yet you were fired in November of 1981. What's the story there?
2: Well, that's more than two minutes, Ron. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, I'm, I'm still a little puzzled, but uh, we struggled early starting that season. Uh, we had, I saw it begun to turn things around. I actually got fired on a five-game winning streak so I don't know how many pro coaches get fired with a five-game winning streak, but uh, I, I had a little uh, misunderstanding with Magic in the last game I coached, and I, and I, privately in another locker room, uh, told him of my displeasure, and unfortunately Magic wasn't happy, and uh, between them and Jerry Buss, they decided to let me go, but. upon reflection, I don't think it was just the magic event. I think that was used uh, to move me out because for multiple reasons, uh, uh, the ownership and the management was, was not pleased with my performance.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Did it not make any sense to you for a long period of time?
2: No, it did not make any sense. And Ultimately, after 20 coaching jobs, Ron, and getting fired in, I think, the counts as high as 14 of them, I realized that when you get fired, it's not personal. That time it was, I me because it hurt. You know, I didn't want to look at my family when I'm at home for dinner. But then you learn that basketball is a business, it's entertainment, and uh, sometimes the owners don't like you, and you have to move on.
1: In about 20 seconds before we break here, uh, how long did it take you to get over it, or did you ever get over it, Paul?
2: Uh, It took a while, uh, probably parts of a year, and then I got another job with the Bulls. Uh, And uh, my opinion now, even though Jerry Buss is the one who fired me, uh, he was the best owner I ever had. Uh, He did anything he could. Uh, financially or any other way to get you the best players and as a coach if you're with a team and an owner that will get you the best players you have to be happy that you're there with him
1: we're talking with paul westhead we're going to talk about his book the speed game it offers a vibrant account of how he helped develop a style of basketball just outstanding we do that as we continue with more of you in sports byline
0: terms and conditions apply
3: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like detective Louis Scarsella. Putting bad guys away,
0: there's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's
3: one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarsella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation.
1: And The law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom.
3: Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars.
1: We never knew we had the same cop in the case. It's Carsella. We got to show
3: that
0: he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves.
3: I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.
1: You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Paul Westhead is with us uh, talking a little basketball, and if you have a chance, I again recommend that you check out the Speed Game, my fast times in basketball. I got to know the Speed Game when I was doing the University of San Francisco basketball broadcast, and of course he was at Loyola Marymount down in the Los Angeles area. Tell me about how you came up with the system. Uh,
2: it started in the 70s when I was at LaSalle. I, I wanted to Play a faster game than was in style then. Even Coach Ramsey played uh, and taught a, a little more control style. So I wanted to open it up, uh, I had some players to to accommodate that. I had point guard named Charlie Wise who was lightning fast. I had Joe Jelly Bean Bryant, uh, Kobe's dad, as my high flying running forward. So I, I, I had the composition of players who, who wanted to play a little quick. Also, in those summers in the 70s, I went to Puerto Rico and coached in San Juan. And the Puerto Rican players loved to run. So I was looking for a running team, and they said, Coach, you found it. So <laughs> with that combo, and I also met a coach, Sonny Allen, from Old Dominion University, who showed me his system and his final words to me were, Paul, you have to be a little crazy to do this. And I said, Sonny, (laughs) I'm a little crazy. I can handle that. So all I'm your man (laughs) got me going. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. What was the aha moment, Paul, when you realized that this could be a successful uh, system in college basketball?
2: Well, simmered for a while, and, you know, I had different jobs. Uh, when I was eventually at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and uh, I had Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball as transfers from USC and Corey Gaines as a transfer from UCLA. With them together, uh, they made the running game go so much better and so faster. And then I started the full-court press with them, and that was the moment. The pressing defense and the fast-break offense uh, was just accelerating. Uh, We shot in five seconds. We made the opposition shoot in five seconds. So the game changed. It was not normal basketball ever again.
1: That's interesting, because I always felt in watching your games and doing the broadcast that you were dictating the tempo of the game, not reacting to your opponent's efforts to dictate the tempo of the game. Was I correct in that
2: observation? Yeah, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, uh, before I put the defense in, uh, just kind of on a whim, you know, we would fast break and shoot in five seconds, and the other team would come down and take 30, 35 seconds to shoot. So there was no pace. it was It was fast to slow fast to slow so with the defense full court it was fast to fast fast to fast and therein changed everything
1: you know it was interesting paul a lot of people said well this is helter skelter but i never felt that way i thought that there was a discipline to what you were doing offensively and defensively what wasn't that the others were not seeing when it came to the system
2: well i think the others saw the game different than basketball was being played universally, especially in the United States of America. So they said, the game we're playing or the game we just played, no one ever plays like that. So this was crazy. This was not acceptable. So many coaches uh, disapproved because it broke the mold of how everyone thought basketball should be played.
1: Let's talk about Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, the two of them together. Uh, the system make the players or did the players make the system?
2: Yeah. Well, the players always determine what you do and how well you do. it. Uh, I mean, I was committed to this running game. I doled it out to them. And in my career, many times players say they want to run and then when it comes down to it, they reject it. This team, This team of Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, Jeff Fryer, uh, they didn't reject it. They embraced it. And once they were in, uh, the system took off.
1: Tell me a little bit about both of these guys, because you get them in the program, of course, transferred from USC, and they really worked well from the very beginning. What was it that you saw in each of them that gave you some confidence that this would work, this system would work?
2: Well, you know, they decided to come because of uh, a, a thing that happened in Philadelphia years before me. Uh, uh, I was at uh, at the Lakers, and I was running a camp in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. And my wife's best friend, who was a nun then, called and <laughs> said, can you, can you help out some of the couple poor kids? in North Philadelphia, because she knew this father, Dave, uh, who was their uh, high school or their grade school coach. So I said, sure. So I gave them two scholarships and, you know, and thought nothing of it. Well, years later, when Hank and Bo were leaving USC, Father Dave called them and said, you ought to go and talk to Westhead. He's, he's a straight guy. He, uh, he helped us out in the past. So they came saw the campus uh I showed them some game footage uh that we had played the year before uh they were leaving and out outside uh Bo said to me coach you're from Philly we're from Philly don't do that to us don't make stuff up like you you doctored the film to make it look fast and I said (laughs) no I didn't That, that that was just regular game tape they said okay we're coming So they knew that they were going to get into a different kind of system. Of course, the
1: tragic story of Hank Gathers dying on the basketball court. And I think in all my years of broadcasting, there is nothing that is uh, kind of engraved uh, in my mind than that incident and that moment in it. Uh, From you as a coaching, uh, being the coach, but also being the person that was In in many ways, I think a father figure to them. Tell me about what you were left about the whole situation with Hank passing away.
2: Well, it's 30 years since that time frame in March, and it seems like three minutes ago. uh, Seeing Hank slam dunk on offense and go running back and collapsing uh, midcourt, never to get up and... Then to pass away, uh, it was, it was, and still is devastating for me, uh, our players, and I'm sure the university. Uh, the only good that came out of it is the players, in an attempt to honor Hank, and in an attempt to spend two hours a day practicing or playing games, they, uh, they wanted to uh, just perform as best they could for Hank, and that's what exactly happened.
1: Yeah, and Bo Kimble, uh honoring Hank's memory in the playoffs. I'll never forget that. It was over in Oakland, and he shot the ball with the same hand that uh, that Hank would shoot. And uh, I mean, I just I get goosebumps now when I'm talking about How did you keep that team together uh so that they could move on beyond something uh, uh, like that?
2: Yeah, I I wouldn't take any credit for that, uh, Ron. They uh after we went to the funerals, uh, one in the church in North Philadelphia. Uh, they came back and they said, we want to play. Uh, we, we don't want it to end. And, and again, I think they didn't want it to end because then they had nothing left. All they had was their uh, sorrow and grief for Hank Gathers. So playing gave them something to do. And they latched on to that. And they weren't so much concerned about winning or losing. They just wanted to play. And, and they played marvelously.
1: Tell me a little bit about trying to use the system as you moved along in the NBA, the Bulls and the Nuggets. Uh, were those players, were those teams willing to embrace that system?
2: Uh, the Nuggets, not so much. Uh, uh, we ran, you know, okay. Uh, uh, but uh, and, and I, looking back, they tried their best they could. You know, uh, we averaged 119 points a game. Uh, when I coached the Nuggets. So the running system was going. We just couldn't win enough games. And in the NBA, as in most professional sports, if you don't win, you're gone.
1: I have a note here in front of me, and I'm going to quote right from it. It says, His long career can be defined by one simple question. He's heard from journalists, fellow coaches, his wife, and, well, even himself. And that question is, why? Why? Why did he insist on playing such a controversial style of basketball that could vary from brilliant to busted? It's a very interesting question, and I'm sure you've given a lot of thought to it. What's the final answer on that question?
2: Well, Ron, uh, when I would be interviewed for a job uh, and they knew my background, that's why they were interested because they knew I was a fast-break coach. My wife would say, during the interview, tell them you're normal. Tell them you're going to do you – know, <laughs> regular basketball so I would ultimately look them in the eye and they say what do you have to say for yourself and I would say I'm going to knock your socks off so I I never got over the running game you also won a championship
1: when you were the head coach of Phoenix uh, an NWNBA title there and I kind of uh, smiled a little bit when I saw that you had signed on to become the head coach tell me a little bit about what your thinking was to take on that challenge
2: well, I was out of work, Ron, and I and, and you know, to a fellow uh, basketball official friend of mine used to say the kids got to eat. So uh, I took the job. I never had coached women. I arrived and I met Diana Taurasi, and everything changed from there. She she welcomed me. She told me to treat the players like the guys and you know, give us everything you have. I did, and. Uh, Within two years, we won a championship uh, on the road again. I always win my championships on the road, the two out of 45 years.
1: One of the things I've always heard, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, Paul, is the fact that the women are more coachable than the men. And maybe you can give me some insight why I've heard that so many times, primarily from the men, uh, that statement.
2: Well, I I think there's some truth to it. Uh, I would probably qualify and say good Women and good men are very similar. You know, they, they want to they keep winning. Uh, but I think in general, women uh, seem to respond to your instructions. So if you give them a play or you give them a scheme, uh, they're going to follow it no matter. Uh, the guys have a tendency to break off and say, uh, I don't know if this works. so I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, the women usually stick together and do the team thing.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I heard is that the women understand the game that they are playing, what they've got as far as talent, how the the women play the game and everything. Whereas, and it's often been said that the men's game is above the rim. The women's game is below the rim. I'm sure that's changing now, but I think that was a very powerful statement to say that they understand the game that they're playing so they become more coachable.
2: There's no question about that. They'll, They'll stick to your scheme.
1: We only have a couple of minutes left, but when you reflect back on this very long and successful career in basketball that you have, what are the things that are kind of engraved in Paul Westhead's mind forever? Well,
2: uh, for me personally, run fast and try and get your players to to follow along with you. And, And if you can get them to do that, you're going to be very successful. And if you try and run fast and you can't get your team to do that, you'll get fired. And the ultimate that I've learned is after 50 years of coaching, you need very good players to win. Do not think that your system or your coaching ability is going to get you into the winner's circle. It's the players who get you there.
1: We have about a minute left. Uh, and what would you like people to take away from this book, Paul, because it is a fascinating book.
2: Well, I on the one hand – it's about basketball. It's about how I ran my fast break and was accepted at times and rejected because it was too hard. Uh, But also there was a journey of life and meeting players and, and situations that, you know, were above and beyond basketball. Uh, Some of my high school players who I I still stay in contact with them 50 years later. Uh, uh, So it's a, it's a journey of joy, filled with a lot of firing
1: well congratulations on the book thank you for spending so much time with me i mean i've known you for such a long time from my broadcasting assignments and everything and it's nice to now understand what was behind the philosophy and everything paul thank you very much for joining us you're welcome here anytime on sports byline
2: my pleasure ron thank you
1: Paul Westhead, one of the most accomplished basketball coaches to ever coach the game. He's been the head coach of three NBA teams, the Lakers, Bulls, and Nuggets. Also has been a coach in the WNBA, won an NBA championship with the Lakers, and a WNBA title with Phoenix. We continue on Sports Byline. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton.
2: Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied.
1: 20 men eventually walked free. Now... In the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.